given where we are in the market and given that things have slowed down, it's actually quite refreshing because not only can you do the diligence on the market and the business, you can actually spend real time with the person who you're going to be hanging out with for five, six, seven, eight, ten 10 years. I always thought that the, the duration mismatch between LPs give us money for 10 years and then we turn around <laughs> and meet a founder within 36, 72 hours, one week, we have to make a decision on giving that money to that founder. It's always been something I've struggled with. And so having a bit more time to make sure we're really building the foundational trust with the founder is really, really important. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, a weekly podcast where every Tuesday we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I encourage you to please share it and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. My guest today is Latif Paracha, general partner at M13, a venture capital firm with over $900 million in assets under management focused on enabling technologies that power the future of consumer behavior. Latif is in charge of the investing strategy for M13 and leads the Web3 and FinTech verticals with investments in companies like Roe, Lining Lab, Solana, Nori, Delphia, and many more. He was previously a managing director at Virgin Group, where he led investing in the Americas and worked directly with Richard Branson. This episode, we discuss investing in the future of money and how companies at the intersection of financial services and Web3 are modernizing established markets while building industries of the future. How M13 analyzes the long-term potential of a business and looks for visionary leaders in industries with significant tailwinds when making investment decisions. M13 remains bullish on crypto, but it's going to take courage for investors to continue backing companies in the category through uncertainty and volatility. What Latif learned working with Richard Branson and whether every entrepreneur should aspire to be like Richard and just a lot more. Hope you enjoyed this great conversation with Latif Faracha from M13. All right. Well, Latif. Welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, all the way from the outskirts of New York. <laughs> uh, so very close to where I am. Uh, how's it going today? Doing great. Thank you, Miguel, for having me on. Excited to, to have this conversation. We've been planning it for a while, so I'm glad it's finally here. So Latif, people want to know, tell us about your background. You know, tell us about your your. Uh, career, particularly as an investor. And, and I know you were not always an investor. You've done a couple of different things before. Sure. Yeah. So I, I grew up in the Midwest in Michigan. And after attending University of Michigan, um, I moved to New York. I spent the first few years of my career in investment banking and in corporate development, working at uh, Bear Stearns and at IAC. And after that, I went to grad school. And really, I spent the bulk of my a career prior to joining M13 at Virgin Group. Uh, Virgin is a very, very unique, uh, really an investment firm. It's a single LP structure that manages the Branson uh, family wealth, which is about $6 billion of assets under management. 
And it was during that time where, you know, we incubated businesses. I got to work very closely on Virgin Galactic and Virgin Orbit. So spent many nights uh, in the Mojave Desert there. I started a venture strategy where we invested in uh, fintech companies like Blockchain and TransferWise, but also in other companies like Slack and Ring. And I have to tell you a, a funny story because it really kind of leads to where, where I am in my career today. But in 2015, I was getting off a plane uh, in Los Angeles and I got an email from, from Richard uh, Branson that said, uh, the subject said doorbell. And I opened it and he said, um, hey, I, I met somebody at Necker Island who showed me this app and it's like a doorbell where you can see, you know, products kind of coming in, out, coming in and out and you've got security, et cetera. And I thought to myself, um, man, where's my career going? I'm looking at doorbell companies. And so anyhow, I said yes, because, you know, he is the boss. And uh, I went and visited this founder in Santa Monica and fast forward, spent a day with him. That ended up being one of our best investments in Ring, uh, where I joined the board and and we led the Series B through his exit to Amazon. And so I, I, I thank Richard not only for the opportunity to, to work for him, but for sourcing a deal that ended up being, you know, very instrumental in my career because through that process I I really learned, you know, what it takes to build a company of that of that scale. And and Jamie Simonoff, the founder, is still a very close friend and, and very, very mission driven. And and that was something that really stuck with me. So after that experience, uh, I decided it was time to really focus on venture full time. And that wasn't something that um, you can naturally do at, at Virgin Group. So I, I left in uh, 2019 to join M13 to really help build the firm. Thankfully, um, Richard and Virgin are still close friends and are investors in, in, in our firm. And at M13, now we've raised two funds since I've joined, the last one being $400 million, And we invest in the enabling technologies that power the future of consumer behavior. What that really means is we invest in, in infrastructure and we invest in B2B2C business models. So we, despite the fact that M13 is really known for being a consumer fund because of old investments like Lyft and Daily Harvest that have been very successful, the reality is we do very little stuff that touches the consumer directly. And I think that uh, the definition of consumer to us is changing rapidly. So it really means end user, whether that is, um, you know, the the developer, whether that's the employee, whether that's a small business. Those are all, in our mind, consumers. And we're funding companies that can target um, a very specific market. So not only are we very focused on being thematic investors across um, the future of money, which we'll talk about, the future of commerce, the future of health, and the future of work. We also very much pride ourselves on our propulsion platform, which is our support platform for our portfolio companies around data, brand, people, and operations. And we've got full-time, amazingly talented partners that focus on those verticals, including Christine, who you know, who runs brand and, and, and communications for us. And that's been tremendous value add for our companies, and it allows them to learn from the experiences that we've had and really have full-on executive support that can be both strategic and tactical as they go to grow their companies. Yeah, shout out to Christine for connecting us. What what does M13 stand for? So people oftentimes think it's a Salvadorian gang. <laughs> that's MS13, that's not us. Um, 
or our British spy agency, which is also not us. The M13, in all seriousness, stands for a Messier 13, which is a it's a constellation of stars in the northern sky, and it serves as a metaphor for our firm, where we shine brighter as a as a as a constellation, as a team, and as a portfolio than we do as any individual. And so we're very focused on this always being team first. We don't do attribution at the firm. Everything is, um, you know, about M13 as, as a whole. And that that goes all the way down to the way we work with our founders, where, yes, you have a lead investor who will join your board, but you get to know all the partners on an individual basis. And they all have something unique to add. And so it's almost more of like a hub and spoke model where you get the circle that surrounds a founder uh, and we support them uh, across all the talent and experience the firm has to offer. So Latif, I was going to save this question for later, but let's bring it forward and we'll talk about M13 in a second. But Richard Branson, you, you brought him up a few times. You worked with him. I think most of us know him as this very public, charismatic, bold CEO who's been very successful. Um, what do you think is so special about him? Well, I think the biggest thing is he has, he's tremendously optimistic and he, and as a, you know, what's interesting is he's not a venture capitalist by his background. He's an entrepreneur, but he thinks like a VC, which is what if it goes right? How do we make this go right? And, um, he has a tremendous ability to will things into existence. He has a tremendous ability to, um, you know, be resilient. If you look back at the history of Virgin, you know, starting Virgin Atlantic to, to go compete with British Airways was not a very obvious thing to do. And the, the, the odds were very much stacked against him, just like any entrepreneur is building. So I think it is really that, you know, that, that optimism and that tenacity, uh, I think, is something that is really, really kind of important. He also has a tremendous risk appetite. I would say almost an unhealthy <laughs> risk appetite. So I've never seen someone who, who can absorb so much risk. I don't necessarily think every founder should have that level of, of risk appetite, but but certainly, you know, you, you need to be able to absorb risk if you think about the probability that any one company is going to be a legendary company is, is just low. It's sub 1%. Yet there's founders every day that wake up and say, I can build that company. And you need to have that very unwavering confidence and belief in, in yourself. And so we look for that in founders. And they don't all have to be, you know, Jamie Siminoff, I mentioned, is is loud and he's brash and he's confident. Uh, and that is one type of founder. If you spend time with Richard, he's actually not at all like that. He's very soft-spoken. Mm. He's a great listener. Um, and then we've got founders across our portfolio if I go and try to say which was the most successful founder, I think you have to be actually very careful around pattern recognition because patterns are historical. They don't necessarily point to the future. So you have to be able to take your experiences and, and, and use them as inputs, but always kind of recalibrate how you think about you know future leaders. Very interesting. So Richard Branson is, is going to do what he's going to do, but not you're saying that not every entrepreneur Yes. Yeah, so the one thing I'll say about great. Richard is he, long before COVID, uh, he had a he had an interesting way of blending his personal and his professional life, and I think that is something. Um, whether it's founders or VCs, I think generally this is a trend that will continue. Um, 
the reason why I brought up COVID is because I feel like in COVID, a lot of people started working from home. And because of that, their lives got very blended together. They're, they're personal and they're professional and there's some balance that needs to go there. But Richard's been doing that forever. And he'd call you on a Sunday morning, not knowing it was a weekend, you know, kind of kind of thing. And I, and I think it's really important that, you know, to be successful, you have to be able to blend your lives together and build really, really deep personal relationships with your with your VCs or your founders. I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah. I was joking that my my birthday in New York looked like a fintech happy hour. <laughs> so I've definitely blended the two. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let's see, let's let's talk about the future of money. Because you, you don't invest in fintech, you invest in the future of money. And that covers several verticals within the financial industry. So tell us about that focus specifically. I know you do a lot of other things, but let's talk about the future of money. Sure. You know, it sounds more interesting, right, than, than fintech. But really, <laughs> we're good at branding things. But no, really, it, it does focus on generally financial services. And it is broad. Um, it's done by design. That includes everything from traditional fintech, whether you're talking about B2B payments or even some consumer fintech, to, to prop tech. And um, we look at how these industries also are intersecting with, with Web3 as a, as a theme. But really, we look for two major things. The first is our teams building software that can scale with a clear market in mind. So that market can be an established one, like a medium-sized companies in the US, or it could be an emerging market, like Web3 developers. And we look for teams also who are predominantly building their own infrastructure. And I think that's important because if you look at fintech over the last five years or even more, there was a real reliance on partner models. So banking as a service, um, neobanks, et cetera. And it's a bit counterintuitive because those models are great in the sense that they're asset light. But what that does ultimately is it, it I think, delivers very commodity type products. And so by owning your own infrastructure, you can build proprietary products and also drive, we think, long-term better margins because you can own more of the pie and not have to share that with all, 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 your, all your partners. So I'll give you two examples. One company I would highlight is a company called Row, which I know you, you've met uh, the founder Everett and spoken to him before. Absolutely. But they're really focused on money management and they're targeting mid-sized businesses in the U.S. They completely own their own infrastructure. That really wasn't the case when they started because that takes time and capital. But that was always their mission is to own their own infrastructure, to have a single platform that lets them build to this future of self-driving finance where banking, remittance, payments, expenses, they're all under one roof and they're all by and large automated, which we think allows CFOs and finance teams to be more strategic. And that's a future that you know we really bought into when we thought about investing in that, in that company. Another company I would highlight is Lightning Labs. Uh, it's building their own rails above the Bitcoin protocol. I like to say it's the original layer two. And the purpose of Lightning is to drive value instantly across the world and for pennies per transaction. So Bitcoin was always the, you know, the core use case. And as Bitcoin continues to become more stable, it will become a more important source of value, we think, globally. Uh, and that business is a, it's a very technical company. So by, by transacting and settling off the blockchain, the network allows for very low fees. And we think that opens up huge number of use cases. 
And so really their target market is a developer and the team continues to innovate and has just launched a product called, um, called Taro, which we think can disrupt global remittance markets, including uh, a company we invested in a virgin called Wise, which we, which we talked about. Because not only can you send Bitcoin across the lightning rails, now through Taro, you can still, you can send stable coins and you can actually send fiat as well. So there's a scenario now where you can send a USD or Euro or yen without any, any intermediary between two people in the world instantly. And that again is, we think a major technical innovation and will open up a ton, tons of use cases. So sometimes we focus on established markets like small and mid-sized businesses in the U.S. And sometimes we um, go further on the edge and we look for companies that are that are building uh, products that are less clear today, but it's a future that we can really buy into. One thing I often talk about with investors, venture capital investors, is, you know, the, the, the concept of investing for the future. I mean, you've said it, the future of money None of us know what the future is going to look like, yet, you know, we have to place our bets in that future. How do you read the tea leaves? It's definitely hard. I mean, I, I think the, the way we, we think about things in, in terms of frameworks is we ask ourselves a question of this business, this market is one that has a better right to exist in three, five, seven, ten years. Another way of thinking about it is what what is a tailwind? that we see here that is really significant. And for us, as it relates to, let's just talk about the Web3 market for a second and and Lightning, putting aside the the craziness of this last week, if you really pull out and and look at at the market, there is technical innovation that made us believe that the ability to send value between two parties in a trustless way that could be authenticated um, was very, very, very powerful. And the ability to remove intermediaries from any single transaction was an innovation that we think could drive tremendous, not just use cases, but tremendous value, particularly for people in in emerging markets. I know you're, you're, you're from Bolivia. I'm not sure if you would define that as an emerging market, but certainly uh, in, in markets um, that don't have access to U.S. customers uh, or you don't have access to even getting paid in a denomination that is relatively, uh, we're all facing inflation today, but you know, you're relatively stable, the innovation that could come with, um, with stable coins and that could come with a network like Lightning was, was significant. And so then we, we make investments and we size them appropriately. We diversify them because you know, it's, it's tough to, to know exactly how these markets are going to play out. And we go and try to find the best people uh, in the world, um, visionaries that not only are doing it for the right reasons, uh, but have the ability to recruit, have the ability to you know raise capital, and have the ability to, as I we talked about the the endurance and the grit, have the ability to um, to to really endure markets like you know if you're building in the Web three market today, it's tough. Uh, and you have to have the grit to come out the other side. And so we, we look for that a lot before we make an investment. Yeah. So, uh, Latif, I agree with you that there are use cases in the Web3 sphere that are really proving to add value. One of the companies that I always like to bring up, and the founder was a, a guest, is Mike Cagney figure. They're doing it themselves. 
But it looks like building this future is going to be extremely painful. We, you and I, it's going to be published in a few weeks, but we're talking on, on the week of the FTX collapse. It's been, I've talked to a few crypto founders. They're depressed. It's not a good week, right? Um, first of all, what the hell is going on? How, how are you uh, reading this whole situation? And, and yeah, what's, what's next? How is this going to affect the market? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot you know, we could talk about on this one. It has certainly been a, a bad week and having a collapse of a company like FTX with a leader who is considered to be very reputable and trusted is certainly something that's going to um, have ramifications for some time to come. I would say that the specific scenario about FTX, we don't have to go into all the details. I think it points a couple of things. There needs to be much better here in the U.S., much better regulation uh, so that companies don't have to go offshore and be based in the Bahamas. And secondly, I think there needs to be just better governance. I mean, it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback, but the reality is there was not great governance around around the business. Um, and um, that's something that if there was, you probably could have avoided a lot of this. But if you take a step back, and again, there will be more fallout, but we're still talking about an asset class that's worth $850 billion today. That's after wiping out a couple hundred billion in the last, in the last couple of days. And so it is still profound if you really zoom out and you say, okay, where was this industry five years ago? You were maybe, it was basically just Bitcoin and then Ethereum started to emerge. We were talking about an asset class that had a hundred, um, maybe a hundred billion dollars of value, if that. And now you're, you know, you're roughly just under a trillion. And you were at, by the way, three trillion in the last peak. And there is volatility, of course. But what it changed, what has changed in the industry is that three things have happened. You had real developers and builders come into the market. You finally had applications. So, you know, DeFi is probably an, an area that's been talked about on this podcast before is a real, real innovation in the market. And DeFi held up great in this last week. Um, but also you've had NFTs and other applications that have really kind of gotten into to, to, to mainstream. And the third, which is the one that is going to take a little bit of work now, is you had real institutional money come into the market. That institutional money looked at this company, FTX, as a kind of a, a real flagship uh, validation. And so that is going to take time to untangle. And we'll... Um, well, that will take that will just take time. But I really think at the end of the day, the reasons why people invest in this market are, are still very valid. I think this probably prolongs the downturn for this market. I think um, it will take probably even longer for it to come back to where we want it to come. But we are long term investors. We believe that this is a profound market. And if you believe that these are actually amazing days to invest it takes courage. It takes a lot of courage. It's like in Ethereum, when Ethereum got to 100 in March of 20, it took a lot of courage to invest in Ethereum. And I and I know many people, including myself, who, who did that. But the same thing is happening now. You could look at um, things like Solana, where we're very bullish, and you could say, if you believe in the future of Solana and the same thesis, then this is a tremendous time to invest. And so... Um, so we're still very bullish. It will it will be a bit of a fallout here, but we're going to be in the market looking for great companies. And 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 you're not only investing 
in Web3 and fintech. But I was I was really surprised to see kind of the range of the boards that you've served in and the investments that you've made. And it's all across healthcare, telecom, direct-to-consumer brands, uh, SaaS. So how, I'm, I'm a specialist. I do fintech only, and I don't know anything else. But how, how do you cut across all these uh, verticals, right? I'm, I'm sure you have guiding principles for business in general, not just for a single industry. Jack of all trades, master of none. That's, that's a <laughs> dangerous trade. Uh, so that is true. I've done a lot in my career. Um, at Virgin, we were very diversified and I covered a lot of it. I would say over time, though, I have become more, uh, you know, more focused. And so FinTech and Web3 have become a big part of what I do as well as some you know, legacy and, and digital health, but ultimately, you know, the, the frameworks that I use to make an investment are, are, are both qualitative and quantitative. They're both left brain and right brain. And that's why I think VC is such an interesting market because you can't, you know, you can't just look at a spreadsheet with a TAM analysis and say that you should make an investment. Clearly, you have to look at market sizes. But I look at the, the markets in two ways. I look at, you know, market penetrating investments where there is a very large established market. We're investors in a company called Capsule in the digital health market. For You're, you're living in New York. You probably use Capsule as a customer. Yeah, absolutely. $400 million market in pharmacy that's just ripe for disruption. So I look at that and and it's less than 1% online. So if you believe it's going to penetrate uh, the, the the market similar to e-com, that's $80 billion of value that's going to kind of transpire in the next several years. So that's one framing. The other framing is market expanding investments where, you know, you look at a market today and you say it's a $850 billion market. Let's, let's use Web3. And in the work we've done at the firm, we published a paper last year talking about crypto and the consumer. And we believe that this is going to be a 50 to $100 trillion market over the next decade plus. And so if you believe that in terms of an overall market, then it's like, okay, well, how do you break that down? How do you think about where to invest? And so we, you know, you, we've come up with specific themes. Um, and then ultimately, um, really, I, I think what's under appreciated in investing and certainly an area we talk about how we need to get better is really, really, really like we do a great job at analyzing markets and business models and all this stuff, but we, we have to continue to improve on the way we think about founders and think about how we evaluate a founder. And I think it's, uh, it's an area I continue to focus on um, because where I think I've gone wrong is that I've made the wrong assessment of a, of a founder's ability to, to create value because sometimes we invest in the right markets and the right business model, but the urgency and the grit and all those things that I had mentioned earlier are not there and, and that doesn't work. And so really kind of really, really honing in on the founder is really important. And given where we are in the market and given that things have slowed down, it's actually quite refreshing because not only can you do the diligence on the market and the business, you can actually spend real time with the person who you're going to be hanging out with for five, six, seven, eight, ten years, I always thought that the duration mismatch between LPs give us money for ten years and then we turn around <laughs> and meet a founder within 
36, 72 hours, one week, we have to make a decision on giving that money to that founder has always been something I've struggled with. And so having a bit more time to make sure we're really building the foundational trust with the founder is really, really important. Yeah, no, I, I like a lot of the points and, and especially the market expanding business, business that are in, markets are expanding, I think is particularly interesting because a lot of people, for example, didn't invest in, in Uber or Airbnb because they thought the market was, the TAM was too small, right? Um, so exactly. That, the, the TAM was too small. I was going to bring up, you know, I was going to bring up uh, Uber, but even Airbnb, I mean, it's much bigger than the vacation rental market could have ever been valued at um, in terms of people using their, their properties for, for space. And so you've got to think bigger about these markets. And to me, the next Airbnbs and Ubers are going to be token-based networks. Uh, and by the way, this isn't a <laughs> this isn't a, a view that's completely shared across the firm, but I, I, I believe in this, that there will be token-based networks that will come out of Web3 that are global, that are powerful, that are brands that we will know for the rest of our lives. I think the game is over in consumer for traditional download an app and it goes global. I think that's over. It will be something completely new. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about that and thinking about token economies and token networks. We were in a company called Stepin, which is um, a fitness application that went for, for Web3 went huge. It was 5 million monthly actives, a million daily actives, which again, compared to an Uber to Airbnb is a drop in the bucket, but for this market is big. And I think in the next, in the next up cycle, it will be a hundred X that. So you'll get things that will be a hundred million to 500 million. So, you know, you, you mentioned, for example, that, uh, you have views that are not shared, uh, widely across the firm. And, and that means that, you know, you, you, you and everyone else, when, when you're making an investment, you got to have conviction and, and you also got to own up to it if it's a, a mistake down the line. Um, what are some of your experiences, you know, kind of learning from from personal mistakes? Yeah, well, first, let, let me let me make a point on um, the not always agreeing, because it is important that you have really good discourse at, at the firm and investment committee. And we don't go we're not a consensus driven firm where need to get majority to get it to get a deal done but there are often times where we don't agree but we have this principle that once we approve a deal we're all in we all commit and we all do all we can as i said we're like a hub and spoke model we all support that that company with all that we have so i think it's important to, to say that and then we we are diversified so if i have a perspective and want to invest in behind those behind those companies we are not going to be putting half the fund into that theme because we're, we, we've got a lot of themes and we have partners that are deploying across a lot of those themes. So there's a natural hedge on that. But to your point on mistakes, there's so many. I, I don't know where to start, but I will say the one thing I will always try to remind myself of is the most you can lose is your invested capital. And so... You can only lose one X. And if you're building a diversified portfolio, if you actually look at it, so I've done this recently where, you know, we've got companies in this market that have struggled and you, I say to myself, man, if this five, seven, $10 million investment doesn't work out, like what is that going to do to our fund returns? And you actually start to look at it and it's actually quite minor. 
because you've got a lot of companies. And so I think the mistake I've made, and I think what's very, it's very human nature to focus on the loss and loss ratios. And there's a real aversion to loss. And I really try to remove that from my thinking when I'm thinking about an investment. And I'm really thinking about the, the mistake that I think oftentimes I've made and others can make is that you, you invest and the, the, the opportunity wasn't big enough. That's where I think you're, you can go wrong. I'd much rather lose my invested capital on a deal, but every single investment I made has an opportunity to be a three, five, 10, 20 billion dollar company. And that's really hard to, to do. And it's really hard to have the patience to wait because those don't come around every single day. So you have to have the patience to wait for the, for those, for those companies. So that, that's a, a broad, I would say kind of lesson I've learned. Um, and then again, where I've, where I've come, where I've been wrong, where I have lost my money is not following my gut on something where I would, I've been convinced or talked into a deal either by the founder or by others around where I, I wasn't a hundred percent bought in. And it's usually, again, probably a, a, a misread on the founder. And so we often have the saying, if it's not hell, yes, it's, it's hell no. And so <laughs> sometimes it hasn't been a hell yes, but we've done the deal or I've done the deal. And that's just kind of, that's just a wrong framing. So. Yeah. That conviction is important. Um, I, let's see, before we go, I want to ask you uh, uh, three quick questions. Um, I find it interesting. Uh, the day of a venture capitalist, you know, can be, you know, it's it's not the same structure for everyone. Your ideal weekday, how does it look like? Get up at. This is probably more detailed than you were looking for. But <laughs> get up at five thirty. Um, I get an hour and a half. I get my coffee at six a.m. Kind of awake. I get an hour of uh, of reading in. And time to myself, my children get up between, I got two young boys who are three and four who mean uh, everything to me. They get up around seven-ish, get them to school by eight and get about a 45-minute workout in after that. And then I spend basically, I try not to have any meetings before 11 in the morning. And so I spend the whole morning alone if I can. (laughs) And that allows me to read, that allows me to get one thing done. And that allows me to deal with fire drills because founder has an issue or something comes up. If you're back-to-back stacked, it's very tough. So that's what I spend the morning with. doesn't always work, but that's ideal. And then I spend the afternoon in the city, effectively no computer, just meeting people and getting ideas and taking notes and inspiration and, and, and learning things. Um, and then, uh, yeah, get, get back home, get my get my kids to bed and then I spend an hour or two uh, working again before I go to bed. So that's kind of, kind of the day. Sounds like a good day. How about a weekend? <laughs> weekend. I don't want to come off as a workaholic, but I, I certainly, I can't go the whole weekend without doing some work. So I certainly find time. It's usually for more long form reading and things like that. But otherwise just, you know, time with my time with my kids. And I also think physical health and, activity is really, really important for my mental health and for my balance. And so, you know, probably five days a week, including more on the weekend, I'll do a long run and I'll, I'll do something that really allows me to, to break, a, break a sweat, get my heart rate up. I think that's critical in our, in our jobs, as you know, there's you know, a lot of stress and, um, and, and 
with a family, it's really important that you keep that kind of alone time and get some physical activity. And finally, let's see what inspires you to keep giving your 110% every day. So other than my family, which as I said, mean everything to me, I think in the professional sense, the two things are, I mean, this job that I have and you have are just tremendous. I mean, we get to hang out with entrepreneurs who are not just brilliant, but they have the risk appetite to bet it all on what they're doing. And that is very inspiring. And you, you just you get so much intellectual stimulation from being around people like that and from reading and learning about markets. So that is insp- inspiring. And the other thing that I find very inspirational is, um, is our team at M13. And of course, I, I learn a lot from all of the partners, but it's really the, the, the team that, is, that we're developing, the associates and the principals and the analysts, to see them grow and to see, and I think sometimes, wow, when this or th- that person is 30 or 40, imagine like how deadly of an investor they're going to be. And that's really exciting to see. And it's, 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 it gives me joy to know that you know, maybe I played a small part in, in their development. I love it. I'm going to have to get more tips from you as we start growing our team. And hopefully we'll do some deals together, Miguel. I know you're the fintech guru. So <laughs> you're going to throw us some deals. I, I'd love to, man. I'd love to. <laughs> Latif, thank you so much for, for stopping by. Um, I'm being very honest when I say that I have enjoyed this conversation a lot. Uh, the audience is going to learn from it. Uh, hopefully you'll get some some inbound messages. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for, for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Latif, general partner at M13. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.